Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. Good afternoon, Mr. Harris. Andrew Decker is here with me. Hello. How's it going, man? It's good. It is springtime in Texas. Spring Two weeks ago, it sprung. was freezing. Today, it's 75 and sunny. Um, yeah. And Texas just uh, removed its mask mandate. Well, it in a week. In a week. 10th. Well, Don't. this is posting on the 15th. So right, right. So it will five adjust. days ago. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so just a quick reminder to any of the small business owners out there, the governor's removed the mandate so people do not have to wear masks. Your local jurisdiction could have still some requirements, but you get to decide what happens in your local small business. Uh, so don't argue with someone if you go into their business and they say wear a mask, put a mask on. Yeah, or if leave. They, or leave. If, if someone comes into your business and they don't want to play by your rules, as always, you can ask them to leave. But what if I don't? Well, if they don't leave, don't argue with them. Don't get into a yelling match. Just simply say, I'm asking to leave. If you don't leave, I'm going to call 911. And what would that been that be then for them? Criminal trespass. Right. That's 180 days in jail, boys and girls. It's way more effective than, than yelling at each other in a store. You know what's uh, almost even a quicker way to get in trouble? What's that? In your small business is messing with your finances. Yeah, especially if you're an attorney. That's right. That's why we have a guest. That's right. We've got Brent Mayer here today. Uh, and you may have heard him. Uh, he is a frequent presenter at CLEs, board certified in Texas uh, in uh, uh, criminal defense, criminal law for the Texas Board of Specialization. It's not often I say this, but you and I are going to be the dummies in the room today. It's not often you say that? Not often. Okay. Well, that, that for sure is. And, and today, guys, we're going to be talking, I, I think, a very important topic to our listeners. That's, that's uh, you know, hey, I've got this client that's hired me. I've got his money. What, what do I do with it now? And so, Brent, thank you for, uh, for joining us on the show today. We really appreciate it. And yeah, it's uh, just introduce yourself and uh, tell our listeners a little bit about you. Sure. Yeah. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, uh, my name is Brent Mayer. Uh, I'm a criminal defense attorney uh, based out of Houston. Uh, kind of work all over the state, really all over the country. Uh, I uh, am, uh, I've been a criminal defense attorney now for about 10 plus years, been practicing for close to 20. Um, spent some time as a prosecutor in Harris County, uh, was a briefing attorney for Judge Hervey on the Court of Criminal Appeals. Uh, so I've kind of done, done it all, seen it all. Uh, but uh, my heart and passion is in criminal defense. And uh, I really like, really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I love, you know, 10 years ago when I started off, you know, there was a lot of people who helped me off and gave me some good advice, but there was a lot of things I had to learn on my own. And uh, I'm uh, definitely thankful for the opportunity to kind of share my knowledge, especially with some of the, the newer lawyers who are just starting off and, and having to understand, you know, the, probably the, the second most important thing below clients, which is, you know, running the practice. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it is amazing how much work there is in running the business of your law firm. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, they definitely don't have enough uh, courses or any courses in law school on the, on the business side. I mean, we have the ethics classes where we do talk about the fiduciary duty that we have to our clients. Um, and uh, that was, I think the first time I really uh, heard that I needed more than one bank account for my business. Right. Uh, so, so, brings us kind of our first question. If I'm setting up a firm, if I'm setting up a solo or maybe, you know, a couple of attorney firm, how, how many bank accounts do you think I ought to start with? Yeah. Um, 
let's start with the most important account, and that's going to be your operating account. Uh, you need to do that. Now, one thing I'll tell you in regard to your operating account is um, you first need to understand, I think it's important to, to consider the, the structure that you should set, you should establish your law firm or your practice in. Um, you know, when I first started off, I just started as just a, uh, as a sole proprietor with a DBA. But uh, as I quickly learned from my accountant, that is not the way to go about doing things. Uh, it, it's best to, uh, it's best to set yourself up with some sort of an entity. Uh, as a lawyer, you can incorporate as a professional corporation in the state of Texas, uh, or uh, as a professional limited liability company, um, Professional limited liability companies are good when there's multiple uh, lawyers involved because then you can distribute management duties. But by doing that, um, the reason I say that you do that is because when you open up your bank account, you know they're going to want to know what your what your business structure is. Uh, and so, um, sort of as to, as a as a as a preface to opening up your bank account, is make sure that you have a a, a business structure set up before you walk into the bank, because what then they're going to want is they're going to want your, if, if you're a sole proprietor, they're going to want your social security number. If you are a, if, but if you are incorporated as a professional corporation, then you'll need to provide them with your EIN uh, that you can get from the IRS, uh, the IRS once you file. Uh, once you do that, you've got your operating account and you can, that's, you got to have that to basically get yourself off the ground. You got to get that in there to be, start buying you know, laptops, equipment that you need to run your practice. You need it to uh, start, you know, start paying rent if you're going to be working out of an, an office or if you're not working out of your home. Uh, I think it's absolutely essential that you that you have a, a good operating account, but make sure as a, again, that you have your entity set up appropriately before you actually open up that first bank account. So that's the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, the, the EIN is so important. I'm amazed how often I'm asked for that. Uh, I've had my social security number memorized since I was a teenager. I have not yet memorized the EIN. So I always have to tell people, give me a few minutes. I'm going to have to look it up, but it's way better to give them that than to give them a personal social security number. Uh, well, first of all, for identity theft reasons, for other reasons, but primarily it says I'm really a business. I'm not just some fly by night operation. Yeah. And, you know, just the protections that organizing has, um, you know, your, your personal assets are, are, are fairly, you know, pretty much covered, uh, should somebody sue your business, um, for, you know, whatever, there's at least a veil, there's a veil. Yeah. I mean, and of course we can get into like business organizations. Yeah, we're not law. doing that right now. Right. Um, but that's really important. In fact, I, just like you, Brent, I started out as just a sole proprietor, had a bank account for, uh, for my business. And when I organized, I had to, like, I went to my bank and I'm like, oh, I'm no longer a sole proprietor. I'm now like an, a PLLC. And they're like, hold the, stop the brakes, you know, like, wait a second. Like, it was a big deal. They like, we had to shut this account down. We're going to have to reopen a new account and all that. So it really will save you time if you're just starting out. Go ahead and get organized first, then go to your bank. So we have our operating account. What else do we need? So once you have your operating account, uh, you're going to have a client who's going to come and hire you. And so uh, what you all, what you really at the same time you open up your oper operating account, you need to open up an IOLTA account, an IOLTA trust account. Um, 
most major banks uh, are going to, uh, you, you go in and you talk to your regular banker, they might say, I got to ask my supervisor about that. But most major banks know and understand what an IOLTA account is, okay? They understand, here's some of the main components that, that, that are going to be necessary for an IOLTA account. One is, um, one of the most important things is that it is a, um, it is a, uh, a fee, it's an account that they that the bank cannot withdraw withdraw funds out of it is a trust account, so they understand that they cannot they cannot withdraw fees they cannot uh, they cannot withdraw fees that really the only person who has control over what comes in and out of the account is the lawyer. Um, it is a trust account. And so, but that is an important component. Uh, I've heard stories about lawyers who set up what they think is an IELTA account. And then all of a sudden, you know, the bank is pulling out like their monthly $12 fee. But again, that's, that's not what it's there for. Uh, another real problem too, is when you have, um, uh, when you have credit card processing fees, or when you have chargebacks, a uh, client writes you a check, you deposit it into your IELTA account, and it bounces, the bank has got to have they can't take an insufficient fee, uh, an insufficient funds fee out of that IOLTA account. They've got to take it out of your business checking account. So it's real important that you, you, you make sure that the bank understands that you are opening up uh, an IOLTA bank account as a lawyer. And most major banks will know how that is, will understand what that is. Um, that is going to be that is going to be your, your holding account uh, th that is required by the state bar of Texas, uh, that any fees that you hold in trust have to be kept in that IOLTA trust account. Now, uh, again, lessons learned from when I first started off, you know, I got an IOLTA account and thought, well, you know, if the client needs to retain, if, if the client needs to give me some funds to hold in trust to, for instance, retain an expert to work on the case, that's what I'm going to use the IOLTA for. But as I learned more and I became more familiar with the state bars rules and, 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 and that's where all this stuff comes from, I really came to realize that, no, the, the IOLTA is where the money gets deposited into. When a client hires you, you're putting that money into the IOLTA account. And I'll talk with you all a little bit more about the, the fees and how that structures and how it moves around. But in terms of what accounts we need to open right now, you're opening up your operating account, but you're also asking your bank to open up an IOLTA account, making sure that it is a true trust account that they are not going to touch uh, so, that, so that you have control over funds that are debited and uh, deposited into that account. Yeah. When I first set up my business and open, went to open my IOLTA account, the bank actually has the sign uh, in their lobby, IALTA, you know, approved. And, you know, like there's actually a sign in their lobby. So I knew they were a good bank and it's a bank that I know. Um, but when we set it up, the banker accidentally set it up just as a, as a, it was labeled trust account. It was, it looked like an IALTA to me. And the first year that I was asked to give my IALTA account number, the state bar said they can't see it. And we, the bank very willingly cleaned it up uh, they even, you know, put a let, put a note on letterhead. We, Mr. Decker came in and asked for an IALTA. It was set up the wrong way. It was cleaned up easily, but it's partly because the bank knew exactly what it was and they, and they owned up. It was a clerical error on their part. And now when it comes time, I give them the number and, uh, you know, I can see that they get their interest. The state gets their interest for the indigent defense fund, et cetera. Uh, and I think so. that's, that, 
that's one part that I left out. So the other, the other component about the IOLTA account is it is an interest-bearing account. It is going to earn interest. The funds in there are going to earn interest. Where does that interest go? It goes to the State Bar of Texas. It's used to, for indigent defense and for lots of other uh, functions that have been designated by uh, the State Bar of Texas. But uh, uh, th that is that is the, the really the defining, that is the, the you know, I forgot, I completely left out. That is really the most defining feature of the IOLTA account is uh, I say there's only one other, I say that the lawyer has control over what goes in and out. There's, there's one other entity, it's the State Bar of Texas. They get to withdraw the, the interest that's earned on a monthly basis based on what you're holding in the account. And look, you know, sometimes, you know, you know, sometimes when you're starting off, you may just have, you know, $50,000, $100,000 in there, and it's just earning a couple, you know, $23 interest. But as you grow your practice, and that number, you know, gets large, and if you do a lot of, I'll tell you, if you do a lot of uh, large, you know, personal injury cases, and you're bringing in, you know, million dollar settlements, you know, that, that, that's going to be a big chunk, but the state bar gets it, and you want the state bar to get it. I mean, it's, it's funding good things. And so it's, it's, it, 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 it's just, it works. You got to do it. And then of course, you know, that is one thing that when you, um, when you update, when you do your, your annual, um, I forgot what the state bar calls it, where you basically have to make sure that all of your information is correct with them. One of the things that you have to affirm is that you, you know, you have an IOLTA account and that you're in compliance with everything that's required by the state bar for maintaining an IOLTA account. So it's very, very important. Again, I wish more people would have been uh, this. I wish this would have been something that we really, I mean, it's important. The state bar will, will bust your chops if you're not managing your IOLTA account properly. And um, I wish that they would been, they would told us more about this in law school. I think with some of the, the introductory uh, courses that the state bar is requiring new lawyers to take, I think that they're, they're making it more uh, um, visible that this is what you have to do. Um, yeah. But uh, it's definitely, definitely important. Well, especially yeah. since the, I think that's the number one way to be disbarred or at least placed on probation with the, uh, with the state bar is mismanagement of client funds. Yeah, that's, it's, I mean, that's, it's that's, really, really seriously uh, uh, handled over there yeah. to quote Tim Moore. Don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so we need at least two. Uh, do you think for like best practices, there's, there's more accounts that are needed? Yeah. So, uh, there's one other, there's one other account that, uh, I, that, um, and, and this wasn't something I did early on. It's just something that I, I figured out to do kind of over the past couple of years. Um, I say you also, you know, banks, they, they, they don't have any problem. They love you opening up accounts. And as long as your fees don't right. get through the roof, it's worth it. I recommend, I, I recommend that in our line of work that you open up a third bank account, which I just call a receiving account. Okay. And here's, here's the reason of that. Um, just like uh, I think Andrew, like you brought up, you know, you, you, you incorporate so that you don't have to give out your social security number to people. Um, I said, I have a, a third bank account set up uh, that is a receiving account that has an account number that I will give to clients when they need to wire funds into my account, when they need to, you know, sometimes they, they have cash and they, but they live out, you know, they live hundreds of miles away. And so I'll give them an account number and say, just go down to my bank and, um, and here's the account number. You can make a deposit right there. Um, I use that. So rather than have to, uh, give or use my operating account for receiving and collecting funds or having to worry about my IOLTA account number floating out there, it's, it, it's a number, it's an, it's, it's an, a, a, 
basically just a, a holding tank, if you would, when the funds come in. So if the, I've got my Venmo linked up to it, I've got I've got a whole bunch of different different ways that I can receive payments, just filter into this one receiving account, and then once it's there, then I can move it into my I can move it immediately into my IELTS account, and it always has. I mean, there's only like fifty dollars in the account at any particular time unless we receive a payment. You know, we receive a payment from a client, we immediately move it into the IELTS account. It's just a nice cleaner way because so that. Again, I, again, I am controlling what is going in and out of the IELTS account, and I'm limiting, you know, my clients to having, you know, my my business operating account uh, information. So I think it's really good to have that as a uh, as your third bank account, if you would, uh, as far in terms of a checking account. So, so in reality, your receiving account probably, uh, really, at the end of any business day, has very little funds in it. Right. Right. Because it's if somebody just, puts money in there, you move it over to to your IALTA or maybe you're operating depending on kind of what's going on. Right. It's it's that simple. And like I said, it's just, you know, I'm not saying you have to do it. I just I started doing it and I, I like that I do it. And it's really not that hard uh, to keep track on the books when the funds come in that, that OK, this is moving in over here. Uh, we've been uh, during the coronavirus. We've been doing a lot of quick pay, a lot of Zelle. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the payments will go directly into IOLTA, uh, but sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll come into one account and it's just an easier way to move things around. So, you know why I like talking to people who are smarter than me? Because you, you and I are looking at each other like, okay, I'm going to write that down. You need to learn that. That's a great right. idea. Always right. loving learning things. Yeah. So an, a client comes in and brings us money and, and in criminal defense, we've all seen, and some of us still use the idea of a flat fee, right? This is, you know, a DWI is going to cost, and we tell them how, what it's going to cost for everything up to the point of a trial. Right. Or uh, in the letter, uh, and I've seen this many times, might, might be guilty, might not, not going to fully disclose, uh, of earned is paid. Um, Tell us, because most defense attorneys don't bill by the hour. So tell us how that works. What does that, what does that really mean and do for us? So um, you, that is the, the, the standard practice in our industry, if you would, or in our profession, or and at least at least our specialty is to charge by the flat fee. Um, it works for in a lot of situations. It works very well on both sides. And it is still the preferred and prevalent manner in our profession. And it's funny because you see a lot of other old professions that have done things by the hour that are converting over my accountants, for instance, you know, when I first started, you know, they just billed me by the hour for whatever time they put. And then eventually they, they switched over to flat fee. So, and, and I've seen a lot of, uh, in the, a lot of other consulting services, things like that uh, across the board, you're seeing flat fees just uh, develop and become more uh, efficient. Yeah. So um, now that being said, uh, a lawyer, uh, this is again, something that I've recently adapted my practice to is don't shy away from using an hourly rate. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's a little unnerving, but you know, especially if like me, you do, I do, uh, I'm on the CJA panel. So I get appointed a few federal cases a year and I have to keep track of my time, uh, to build the federal government for that time. Uh, some, uh, attorneys who do state appointments have to do similar things. Don't be scared of the hourly rate. Uh, and it, the, the thing about it is, is um, you know, in terms of 
in terms of setting your fees and whatnot, you know, I, I I'm now doing it where I, I do an either, or I tell the client, look, my flat fee, you know, for this case is going to be $25,000 or, you know, I can bill you at my hourly rate of $750 an hour. I'm still going to want a $25,000 advanced fee retainer that I'm going to bill against. And I can say that could work to your benefit if, you know, I only put in, you know, 10 hours worth of time. But if I put in a hundred hours of time, you're going to be poning up more and more money. On the other hand, you can pay this $25,000 flat fee and it's going to cover everything short of a trial. So, um, and that's just a couple of things about I want to say about flat fees is, is even though it's the standard, I don't think, you know, don't shy away from that. Plus, it also kind of shows what your worth is to the client. You know, a lot of times I can't tell you how many times clients when I tell them, you know, uh, that my hourly rate is $750 an hour that they're like, whoa. And I was like, look, I mean, that's actually reasonable. I mean, East Coast lawyers are charging like $1,250 an hour and uh, and uh and, 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 you know, you're, you're getting what you pay for, but it, it kind of, it kind of, it helps give them some perspective and it makes them understand that, okay, the lawyer is, you know, I, I, there's some, when you throw out a flat fee, the, the client's like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to pay this amount. But when you explain that your hourly rate is, you know, 500 or 750, or even if it's only 250 or 300, they're going to understand why your flat fee is what it is. So that's just kind of another important practical thing about the flat fee. But uh, once you get the flat fee, okay, whether it's a flat fee or it's an advanced fee retainer that you're going to bill against, it has to go into the IOLTA account. Always, always, okay. always, always must go into the IOLTA account because you have not under the, under the state bars ethics interpretations, you have not earned that fee until you've actually started working on the case. All right. Now, um, if, before we, before I go on to talk about uh, about um, non-refundable retainer fees, uh, do you all have is that do you all have any comments or questions about the flat fee and what I've said about that? Okay, so so it goes automatically. So let's say three bank accounts, uh, a client doesn't actually come into your office. They use your receiving account. You wait until that clears the receiving account bank, and then you automatically transfer it to the IOLTA. What is, is the correct. issue with transferring those funds into the operating account and then into the IOLTA? Okay. I mean, I mean, technically, you know, I mean, here's the problem is, is when it hits your operating account, then it, it, you run the risk that the state bar or anyone else is going to say, well, you've now converted what is, what belongs to the client to your benefit. There's also the problem with the taxing. Uh, there's also the problem with the, with, the, with the taxing of all of this, right? So, you know, the other reason I, I you know, everything goes into that IOLTA account is because you're just holding it in trust. Once you convert it to your funds by moving it into like an operating account, that's now income. That's income you're going to have to pay yeah. taxes on. That is now, that is now belongs to you, but it's really just a matter of conversion, converting what belongs to the client to what belongs to you. Now, again, a client gives you the funds that go into like one receiving account and you move it into your operating account mistakenly, but then you immediately move it into the IOLTA, you're not going to get in too much trouble. But again, you want to be careful because you want to, you know, co-mingling is a huge problem yeah. um, and that, that no one likes. And so it's just better to have it nice and clean that the money goes directly into, you know, it gets moved into that IOLTA account immediately. 
Yeah, that's what I've always I've always kind of seen the operating account as me putting my own tag on that money. Like that that money is now mine. And I yeah. I, I agree. Whenever any any of our clients come in to hire us, pay a retainer, uh, pay on the payment plan that we've set up or whatever, it's in the trust trust account first until I've earned that money. So yeah. so that brings it I I think becomes the next great question. How do I know, especially if I'm not doing bill by the hour, it's a flat fee. How do I know when I've earned that money? Yeah, so that's a really good question that there's really not a good clear answer to. Okay, um, th this is this is just. Are you, you know, going to give opinion? us? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look. Here, here's what th there really is not a, a, a good answer. So there are some older ethics opinions that talk about how um, that that say that you can as a flat fee. Okay, you can earn the fee once you start working on the case, all right? Uh, the flat fee says, okay, I'm going to pay you $10,000 to handle this DWI, okay? So once I file my notice of appearance, I make my first appearance at court, I request the discovery, the work is, I have, I'm, I've started the work, okay? And so th there, there is a, a, an older line of, of, of opinions that talk about that, you know, the, the fee will be earned once work is performed on the case. Now, the problem with that is, is that you have to balance that against the ethics rule that talk about a fee being about being reasonable and not being unconscionable. And so the problem that you're going to run into is even though you might be able to say, well, under one set of ethics rules, I have and one, one set of ethics rules and basic just uh, and other legal authority, I have earned that fee once I started working on the case. The problem you're going to run into is the state bar is going to say, okay, you, you, that rule is not the concern. The concern is, is that you're taking $10,000 and you're saying that you've earned that $10,000 when all you've done was file your notice of appearance, make your first appearance and make a discovery request, which took you all of an hour worth of your time, which based on your contract is only $750. Um, if you were to go on an hourly basis, that's, that's where the state bar is going to say, well, yeah, you may be doing this right, but you're, you're charging an unconscionable fee for what you were doing. And so um, there's, there's different ends of the spectrum of this. So there's, you know, the, the sort of the risky approach is that you say, I'm taking the, the flat fee entirely once I've started working on the case. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, and I know some lawyers that do this, and I'm slowly, I'm slowly moving towards this model as well, is um, you keep it there until the case is over with completely, okay? You just leave it there until you have completed everything on the case. And then at that point, you can then take the full amount out. Uh, that is the safest way to do it. Uh, if, if you absolutely don't want to have any problems with the state bar, then you leave it there until the case is completed. And then you're going to have no problem saying, I have now earned that $10,000 fee. I'm going to pull it into my operating account and make it mine. Where I've operated and where I think a lot of other lawyers operate and should be operating is just somewhere in between. And just saying that, look, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to take a certain, you know, I'm going to take a certain amount of time, uh, a certain amount out of it, you know, on a, on a monthly basis, on a quarterly basis, 
Uh, I used to do it on a month. I, I used to do it on a monthly basis where I would just go through all my cases and I would say, okay, well, let me look at what I did on this case. Okay. I've got a $10,000 fee for this DWI case, but you know, I've requested an ALR. I've uh, gotten this discovery. I've reviewed this and I might say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and take, uh, I'm going to take of that $10,000 fee, I'm going to take, you know, a thousand dollars of it for this month. And then the next month I'll do the same thing and say, okay, I'm gonna take another thousand dollars. Um, that's, it's again, there's nothing that says that you have to do it that way. Okay. You might say, I'm going to take out a little bit more. Here's what you just have to understand is what's going to happen at the end of the day. Okay. I like to, I like to think of what happens if you drop dead tomorrow. Okay. If I drop dead tomorrow, okay. I had a client who just hired me on a, on a case paid me, pays me $30,000. Okay. Well, if I drop dead tomorrow and I, then what's going to happen? I mean, that, that someone's going to have to either refund money to that client to, have, to him go hire another lawyer, or my firm is going to have to have another lawyer take over it. And that lawyer is going to have to be compensated, you know? So I have to think to myself, all right, um, you know, I, I need to have this or, here's the other, you know, there's the drop dead tomorrow, or there's the, you're getting fired tomorrow, right? The, the right. client could call me up tomorrow and say, Brent, I decided I'm going to hire this other guy. And I appreciate everything that you've done, but you know, and there's some lawyers that will have, I know that will refuse to give any money back. Yep. And, you know, I've had to have talks with my clients about, well, you know, here's what you can do. You can try to argue with them that you, they haven't earned that fee, but you, it depends on what the contract says. A lot of time there's no written contract, so that doesn't help. And so, um, you know, you, you kind of have to look at it from that perspective. If you get fired tomorrow, you know, are you going to be able to, you know, what, what's going to be a, a reasonable amount, okay, to, to refund the client? And what are you going to be able to justify to the state bar as being a reasonable amount for the, the what you have the work that you have actually done on the case, so that's another way. Um, and then I know some lawyers that will actually spell it out in their contracts. Um, uh, I know Larry Boyd out of Dallas. Uh, he 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 has like a he says you know for the ALR it's this and for for an appearance it's this and he'll actually break it down. I don't think the state bar. I don't. I'm not so confident that the state bar would require something that detailed, um, but. Like I said, you, you're that you've got these range of options that you can work with, and you know I think that there's somewhere in the middle area that you just kind of have to figure out what you're comfortable with and what works to your benefit. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and in mine, because of um, uh, a CLE, I actually went to. I, I started uh, putting in in the contract benchmarks as to this is when this percentage of the fee is earned. Yeah. Um, all the way through until you know disposition or trial or whatever. Um, but I. And I, I recognize that best case scenario, that best practice would be transferring all the money once the, you know, only when the case is disposed of. I just, you know, for me right now, it's not very practical right. um, given the expense of running an office and moving into an expensive office space. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 and again, I think that's, I mean, I, I only know a few lawyers that have been practicing for, you know, 20 years plus. Which kind of leads to the other thing about the IOLTA account is, you know, the IOLTA account, the other thing I like about it is it's like a savings account, okay? It's like a savings account. It's, it's become like a savings account for me. And, you know, I know how much I need to take out every month to, you know, make payroll, to pay rent, to pay insurance, to pay my salary, things of that nature. And, um, but it's nice to have that IOLTA account and, and, and understand that, look, 
you know, the, I'll take the money out as long as I can justify that I've done the work, but there's nothing that says that you have to take it out. You know, you can leave it in there and just let it sit there. The state bar gets the interest, but it's, it, it becomes like a savings account of, you know, I had opened, I had opened up a base business savings account and then I closed it because I was never using it for anything. My, my IELTA becomes like a business savings account. And the other thing too, is, you know, I have, to, you know, a few good months or something like that. Again, I don't want to pull all that income out and have to have to get taxed on it, right. leave it in the IOLTA account and then slowly draw it out. And then that way you're, 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 you're spreading out your tax burden over a, a longer period of time. There's some benefits that way. So um, there's some, again, there's, there's, you can do both ways. I mean, like I said, I, I don't, I would never expect anyone to sit there until the case is done with. I mean, once you've done the work, you can pull it out. Right. Um, yeah, but speaking of it time, as, a, as a savings account, I know when I can see my when I see my Alta account and it's got a good sum of money in it, I re, it's it's also a reminder of if I want that money, I've got some stuff I've got to do. Exactly. That's right. What I, that's what right? I was thinking. Yeah. Um, yes. So the the and some of it I know I don't know when it's going to come. Right. I've got trial fees in there mm-hmm. uh, that have been paid paid in full, and Lord knows when those trials are going to happen, but. I know I've got a good amount of money in there that at the end of a trial, Andy and I are going to go to steak dinner. <laughs> Heck yeah. Especially yeah. if we have a win, but yeah. Brent, so that that's kind of what I was thinking too, is like, it's, it's very good motivation for me to get out of bed, get to the office and do some work for my clients. If I want to touch that money. Right. Um, are you, do you just practically speaking, are you tracking, um, you know, who, who paid what, like in a, in a, in a separate spreadsheet or anything, or, or just literally from the paper file from the contractor or whatever. No, no, no. We have, I mean, we have, (laughs) you know, aside from our, our, you know, we use QuickBooks in our law firm. I I started using QuickBooks, started, made my own entries when I first started. And now my paralegal does that. And now I've got bookkeepers. I will say this, get a bookkeeper. There's get a bookkeeper to do this stuff for you. You know, I've got a good bookkeeper, you know, for a, couple hundred bucks a month it is it's worth it to have them just kind of cross your t's and dot your i's uh but but in addition to that we do have a separate you know we we have a separate uh, you know spreadsheet for um you know so i know some lawyers that have spreadsheets for every individual client we just have one master spreadsheet that we use uh, I know there's a lot of uh, software, Clio and things like that, that will manage all that stuff for you and tell you how much the client has paid and how much they've owed. Uh, we just have a regular spreadsheet system to do that. And uh, it works really well. And so, you know how much the client has paid you. And then, you know, again, and then we have a separate system for keeping track of, you know, how much we've, uh, with how much we've taken out yeah. uh, of, of that client's fee to, to pay for their services. Fantastic. Smart. Is so- there, Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to ask about the the best practices. Like any, I mean, we've gotten a lot of really you know great golden nuggets here for our for our listeners and for me personally. Um, yeah, I need to go take a look at my my accounts. Um, is there any other like best practice for law firm finance that that just as criminal defense attorneys um, we should know we should be doing in our own practice? Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've 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 kind of laid out a lot of the things that you need to do. Uh, you know. Um, Credit is a dangerous thing. You know, it's a dangerous thing, but sometimes it's a necessary thing. And uh, again, you know, you may have, you may have, uh, you may get hired on a big case, get paid a hundred thousand dollars, but you're brand new into the case and you haven't started putting in the work, but 
you know, that's it, you know, and, and you want to get that hundred thousand dollars, don't do it, you know, you know, work on it and you can slowly pull out of it. But, you know, if you've got to make that payroll or something like that, use a line of credit, you know, businesses are issuing lines of credit right and left and, and, and they're, they're, they're a good tool to have, but at the same time, be careful. You don't want to get underwater. Um, I, I can't stress enough the importance of, of, of having the IELTS account and having a good tracking system. The lawyers that get in trouble with the state bar are not managing their finances well. And here's the thing about it is I suck at managing finances. So get someone who can manage the finances. Again, yeah. uh, I, I highly, I mean, it, it, we need to be practicing law. Okay. You know, when I first started off, yeah, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do my entries into, into QuickBooks, but I don't have time to do that anymore. Get a bookkeeper. It is, it, it's an expense that you can write on. It's tax deductible. And they, to have someone do that. And there, and again, it's not, you know, my, uh, my bookkeeping firm to do my payroll and to, uh, to, make sure my books are in order on a monthly basis. It's like 300 bucks. It's, it's not that big of an expense and it is so, so worth it. Um, uh, I, worth I can't it just for the peace of mind, isn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. Just right. to have someone, you know, you, you know, have someone um, now I can, you know, I have, you know, I'm still looking at my accounts on a daily basis so I can see what's happening, but just to have the booking and the tracking of what's happening and everything else, like that done makes it really easy when you got a good accountant. Obviously, you need to get, you know, get in a good accountant to advise you how to set up your structure, you know, whether you're going to elect your do an S Corp election or anything else like that. You want to work with your accountant. Um, you got to have a team. I mean, to be you, you know, you guys are good lawyers. Okay. <laughs> you know, you're expected to be good lawyers by your, right. by your clients. You know, uh, don't, don't, you know, focus your efforts on taking care of your clients and providing legal services to them. Don't, you know, try to limit the amount of time that you're spending dealing with the, the firm finances, if you would build, build yourself a good team. It's, it's, it's essential. It's worth it. And, and it just, it pays, it pays, it, it, it's, it's worth it in the dividends at the end of the day. So that's excellent. Excellent. Fantastic. Excellent. So the things that I think uh, Andrew is going to have to fix and I'll let you pick which Andrew it is. The receiving account and and really depending more on the bookkeeper um, uh, are are really big nuggets I think at this point. So yeah, we ask every guest a few fun questions. We send them to you. Uh, it's a way for us to to find out a little bit more about the person. We all do CLEs, and at the end of the day, we don't even know if this person likes Italian food or not. We're not going to yeah. ask you about food. Uh, first question: favorite band or musical artist? Uh, that's. Uh currently i'm really into the neighborhood right now they put out a really good album uh that's really good but but my all-time favorite um, is vampire weekend um nice. i've been i i hooked onto those guys when they first came out back when i was in college and uh saw them at acl and i've uh, been following them since then um caught them here in concert uh right before the the pandemic and uh down here so in a Houston, whole year quite ago. A, yeah and it was it was by far one of the most amazing concerts I've ever concert experiences I've ever been to. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's, I'll that's look into them. Yeah. Very yeah. Oh yeah. Vamp Vampire weekend. Check them out. They are, they in are the phenomenal. Yeah. All right. What about a favorite book or, or one that you've read recently that, that you just recommend to people? So this kind of ties into what my, my, my best piece of advice. So I am currently reading Foster Klein and Jim Faye's parenting with love and logic. Okay. And I've it's, actually it's, read it's, that book. Pardon? I've read that book. There you go. So 
Uh, it was recommended to me and, you know, I've got, I've got two girls, eight and six, and this kind of ties into my, my best piece of advice, uh, you know, personally and professionally, you know, uh, the, all this finance stuff and law firm stuff, you know, it's important, but, but at the end of the day, you know, some of the best advice that I got from lawyers is, is don't lose sight of what's most important in your life. And that's your family. And uh, I love my, I've got an eight and a six year old who I love to death and I'm trying to be the best, you know, as, as hard as I am trying to be a good lawyer, I'm trying to be an even better father and a husband. And so I like, you know, I, I like reading books like this to kind of keep me in line and make sure um, that I'm, uh, that I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing that, the best man. I can. So kudos yeah, to you. And that, you know, I think that's really important too. So a lot of times criminal defense attorneys get jaded. They, they get burnt out. They, you know, just start, I don't know, just start like getting dragged down. And it's really important. Like we are in a great position as our small business, as small business owners, as criminal defense attorneys to really take advantage of, um, of, you know, like spending time with our family and, and right. You know, and, and it's easy to forget to do that. It's also easy to forget to, to take care of yourself and, and learning how to be a better dad is taking care of yourself. Right. On. That's one of the pieces. And so kudos to you. Um, so Brent, thanks for being on the show. Uh, it is, it has been a lot. Every time I hear these, you know, these kind of topics, uh, these ethics topics, uh, I find myself kind of going, what do I need to do to be in the best practice to be in, uh, uh, not just good as an attorney, but also good as a business person, good in, uh, with my clients, uh, yeah. financially. So thank you for giving us the time. Uh, again, we, are well, just before we go, Brent is the best way for our listeners to get a hold of you, uh, on your website, mayor dash law or hyphen dash hyphen law.com. That's right. Um, I, 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 that, and I'll make, I, I want to make, um, uh, I want to make a plug. Uh, so, uh, another thing is, uh, so I am, uh, as I may have mentioned, I may not have mentioned at the top of this. Uh, so I am the co-chair of the ethics committee for the Texas Criminal Defense Lawyers Association. We love uh, TCDLA. Yeah. So uh, uh, Robert Pelton, who writes the ethics article, is head of the committee. And uh, I've known Robert for years. And when I went into practice, uh, Robert, um, Robert got me involved with the ethics committee. Uh, and it's really um, it's really been a, a great experience and it's been a really great group of people. We have, uh, our committee has a, num a multitude of lawyers from all over the state. Chuck Lanehart up in the Panhandle, Joe Connors down in the Valley, uh, Betty Blackwell in Austin, who is just phenomenal. We're so glad we have her on the committee. Uh, we've got a bunch of great members and we really pride ourselves on helping other lawyers, helping other criminal defense lawyers uh, when they're faced with ethical dilemmas. You know, the state bar has its hotline and there's lawyer assistance and all that other stuff. But, you know, we, we, we like to take care of our own. We're sort of our unique bunch of practitioners. And uh, our ethics committee really uh, does a great job to help lawyers out anytime anyone needs any sort of ethical advice. They're more than welcome to email me or email Robert Pelton. Uh, but the ethics number, the ethics hotline 512-646-2734 is, I mean, we, Robert's gotten calls, you know, in the middle of the night from lawyers on the verge of a breakdown and, you know, we're, we're here to help. And so um, um, <clears throat> we definitely encourage people to 
reach out to the hotline with any sort of question of about something like this. Uh, we love, love, love helping other lawyers um, be better lawyers and remain ethical. Right. That, that's great. And we'll include those on the show notes as well. Again, that number 512-646-2734. You got uh, it. Yep. Yeah, cool. All right. So again, we're Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. We have had a thrill to speak with Brent this afternoon. Um, we, you can find us on any of your podcast apps. You can find us on the web at texascrimdefense.com. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook at Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. Um, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, y'all.